Caloundra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is every student matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives, as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. Here at CCPS, we try to equip our students with the skills needed to navigate the workplace, understand their rights and manage their money, to make sound financial decisions as they commence their lives as learners and earners. My guest today is Mr Troy Walsh, the secondary school facilitator for Start Smart with the Commonwealth Bank. Mr Walsh was invited to speak at CCPS to engage and empower our senior students to make confident financial choices. So what is financial literacy and why are these skills so important for today's teenagers? And how do you change the way young people learn about finance? Troy, thanks for joining me today. No, thank you for having me. Now, Troy, you've been speaking at our school today and I observed your talk to the Year 11s, which was really interesting. (laughs) Thank you. What do you hope that students will learn from participating in your workshops? So ideally, I think... Personally, uh, it's a lot about starting a conversation. That's the way that I always like to think about it and speak about it to teachers that I talk to. Um, I think the idea is is these kinds of lessons we hope to carry past the classroom, you know. Um, We don't expect to change the world in a day, but if we can get students talking about how they save their money, how they spend their money, rules and regulations of the workplace, you know, superannuation, if we can get them to think about that, talk about that, Um, They can take those conversations home, they can talk to their parents about it and it's kind of, it does more to nudge them in the right direction for both now and in the future. With different year levels, you focus on different topics. Can you just walk us through what some of those topics would be? Yes, of course. So um, we have only one workshop which really works specifically for a certain year level. We have a a Smart Choices workshop which really focuses on um, needs and wants as such, really to a a level that Year 7s and 8s of course are going to be really with. Um, Then we also talk about saving and spending which I often find works quite well with um, around 9s to 10s, 11s sometimes. Um, We have our earning workshop, which is the one that you saw, that we talk about rules and regulations of the workplace. Anywhere from year nine onwards works good for that because they're looking at first-time jobs. We have an investing workshop, which we definitely try to target with higher gear levels because we talk a bit about superannuation. We talk about some different investment opportunities and um, ultimately how to do your research and be smart about your choices in that way. And then we also have an enterprise workshop where we just talk about small business, culturing the ideas behind small business and also just kind of encouraging them to think about making their own ideas work for them as well. So, And that one can be tailored anywhere from, yeah, I've done that for year sevens and I've done it for year twelve. So. If we look at the workshop on saving money, yes. what do you teach kids? So when we talk about savings, we, we have a different, we have a, a slightly multi-level approach. Um, we start by talking a lot about habits. 
So I introduced a couple of funny slides where I talk about, you know, kids that like to click their pens or, you know, pushing the, um, the buttons at red lights. Um, and we talk about habits, different habits that we do on a daily basis. And then I slowly introduced the idea that savings could work as a habit, something that we do regularly without so much thinking about. Um, so the first, I'd say, half of the workshop, I really focus on how we can make that happen. Um, so by doing things like, you know, starting really small, saving money you know you won't miss. Um, I talk about the Coca-Cola challenge, which I know some other facilitators have told me about. You get a 600ml Coke bottle, you put nothing but, um, but $2 coins in it, and when it's full, it's worth about $1,000. So we just introduce a lot of idea of repetition, you know, start small, start simple, just a little bit, just save that little bit, because that little bit's gonna add up and it's gonna build that habit, especially while they're at school and it's nice and easy. And then for the second half of the workshop, we move into just some more concrete steps on how to plan a savings goal. So my steps, I just talk about knowing what you want in a specific detail, finding out exactly how much it's gonna cost you, and then working out when you want it, and then how much you save per week, fortnight, or month to get there. And then after that, we talk about just ways that you can protect your savings money, you know? So asking your parents to hold on to it for you, putting into a money tin you can't open, like some way that you can save it in a way that you know you can't easily access it. So we kind of protect it as such. So that's kind of like the, the three-step process of, of the workshop talking about saving money. Do you think um, students and teens today find it difficult to save money? Um, I think they can. Uh, I find a lot of it has to do with um, influences around them. I think a lot of it comes down to different influences. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard of Fortnite, the, uh, the, the go-to popular game at the moment. So it's um, a, a game on computer and um, it's been in the news a bit. It's, it's a game which a lot of teenagers and young people are playing um, and has microtransactions. So you can spend real money within the game to buy an in-game currency which you can use for cosmetic items of certain types. So um, that's something that gets brought up quite a bit and it's often funny that when talking to students I have a lot who talk about the ways that they spend money because of how their friends spend money and how the people around them spend money. Um, you know, if someone, if all their friends are buying skins on Fortnite, they're much more inclined to do the same thing. Um, so I think it can be difficult um, and I think with the amount of temptations available to young people in particular, um, it can be hard. But um, some people just find it naturally, <laughs> naturally gravitate towards it better than others, I suppose. How do you resist that temptation to buy something that you may not necessarily need, but you really want it? <laughs> this, is, this is the million dollar question. Um, the way I often talk about it with students is um, I often say that time is your best friend when it comes to making good decisions. Um, the more time that you can spend thinking about a decision you're about to make, I argue, the more likely it is going to be a better decision. Um, in the spending workshop in particular, we talk a lot about this, where I suggest um, waiting 24 hours before making a spontaneous purchase. So if you're at the shops, you see a pair of shoes that you're interested in, rather than just kind of going, can't miss out, I'll take it now, um, you take time to think about it. You walk away, you know? If you can't wait 24 hours, you just go to a couple of other shops in the meantime. And you know, if you're still thinking about that thing, 12 hours, 24 hours later, you know that already it's more likely to be a smarter purchase because you've, you clearly want it, you know what I mean? Um, I think spontaneous and impulse buying is a very big factor that affects young people particularly quite, 
quite a lot. And adults as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've all been victim to the spontaneous, <laughs> the spontaneous purchase. But um, yeah, so the, I think thinking about it is often the, the best piece of advice. And it seems like such a simple one, but I think it's when you stop to think about it, you start obviously asking the real questions. Do I actually need it? Is it really worth the money? Do I, do I care about it enough to go all the way back to the shops and pick it up, you know? Um, sometimes I've been lazy enough that I've decided that it's not worth driving all the way back there to go buy that thing, whatever it may have been. And if that's the case, I've saved money on potentially what was, wasn't a smart purchase, you know? Well, in order to buy something, you need to earn the money. And exactly. the workshop that I um, observed you deliver was focused to the year 11s. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that particular workshop. Um, what advice would you give a student who was going for their first job? What are some of the things that they need to be aware of from a financial perspective? Um, I think as far as getting a first job, it it can be a bit of a daunting task. Um, I talk a bit about job interviews in the workshop as I saw you saw. Um, And we do really do a lot of um, really just being comfortable and understanding it's just you're having a conversation with with another person. But as far as the financial aspects, Um, It's a lot of understanding about the job before you go for the job. Um, In the workshop, we talked about um, understanding award wages. And I often suggest, especially students who ask me personally in workshops about, you know, ideas, I often suggest that they do their research before they go in. Because that way, if they have an idea of what their award wage is supposed to be before they enter that conversation, they ask the boss what the expected wage will be, the boss quotes something under the award wage, they can avoid a potentially you know, negative situation where maybe they're entering a, into a job where an employer isn't paying them correctly, which is the kind of thing we all want to avoid. So, um, so definitely research beforehand is really helpful. Um, and then as far as getting paid, uh, I've often talked about students uh, when they first get their jobs, they enter that or where I can buy things kind of moment, they want to buy lots of stuff. Um, Setting up a kind of savings habit that time is often really good. Um, I know parents often do a lot of these kinds of activities where, you know, they they may take half of a student what they're earning from their first job, they take it away to hold on to it for them. Um, There's lots of ways to do it, but definitely a lot of research and planning beforehand because I think again, that extra time that you put into plan beforehand is always going to pay off in the long run. And where would students go to find out what they should be paid and what their rights are at work? Of course. So um, in the workshop, we talk about uh, Fair Work Australia, who we know is the government body behind all of this information. Um, I point them to Fair Work Australia's website, fairwork.gov.au. Um, we also point them to Fair Work Australia's call line, the number 131394. Um, where they can often go to seek any information that they require. Um, and because they are obviously the government body behind the rules, they're easily the best source, I believe, to go and find that information for yourself. If a student is having difficulty at work or having a pay issue mm-hmm. or some other problem, what should they do about it? Um, I think the biggest thing is talk about it. Um, I hope you don't mind if I I tell a quick story here because um, I was actually doing a workshop at a school in Toowoomba. Um, I had a student approach me after that earning workshop. She was in year nine. Um, She asked me if she could ask me a question. I said, of course, what she want to say? And she said to me that she'd been working a job for six months and she hadn't been paid for it. And her next words were, is that okay? 
Oh, goodness. And hearing that, I, I was shocked and I kind of thought immediately, I thought, no, there's nothing, nothing okay with what you just said. And immediately I said, you know, how has your employer justified this to you? And as she explained, her employer said it had something to do with the fact that she was under the age of 16. He wanted to wait until she turned 16 to put, him on to, to put her onto his book work and he was going to wait until that time to reimburse her. So... And I think my biggest takeaway from that was when the teacher was approaching me to, to say, you know, thank you for coming, see you later. Um, she's overheard this and come over and immediately asked the same thing. She was like, did, did you just say you haven't been paid for six months worth of work? She had no idea this was even happening. So, I mean, ultimately, of course, if you're in a position that you are owed money or you're potentially working somewhere that isn't looking after you, I, my first advice normally is to leave. I mean, to this young lady, I said, do you enjoy working for no money? She said, not really. I was like, great, stop doing it, you know? Um, so leaving is often a, a, a good remark, but again, you're still owed money at that stage, even if you do leave. So it's important you talk to the people around you. It's important that you talk to your parents. It's important that you talk to teachers. It's important that people around you know what's going on, because even if I was in a position that I didn't understand this information, I talked to my friend, my friend goes, well, that's not right. And then all of a sudden we're starting a conversation about what is the correct information and how do we deal with it. Um, I often point people to Fair Work Australia as well. I think um, they're amazing at what they do and they do very much care about this kind of stuff from everyone that I've ever spoken to from Fair Work Australia. Um, so people can always be free to call them up and they're always happy to help out. A lot of our students um, may work in hospitality mm. and therefore penalty rates come into it. Of course. Are penalty rates, can you just explain that for our, for our listeners? Are penalty, penalty rates decided by the employer or how does that work? So penalty rates are, are again something which kind of falls into the government's area. So the government are responsible for kind of um, not only setting the award wage but setting measures of penalty rates as well. Um, so that's why, for example, July of two years ago, um, when Fair Work Australia decided to cut penalty rates, they were able to do so because they are responsible for setting those rates. Um, but employers do have some freedom in how they set those. Um, an employer can pay over the minimum, um, whether it's a penalty rate or a, um, uh, just an award wage in general. Um, they're able to do that as long as they don't go under. So the important thing is, is they say over the award. What are the current penalty rates for... Um yeah, week, weekend work or out-of-hours work? So it very much depends on the industry. They change very drastically based on not only the industry, but the age. So up until I believe the age of 21, um, every year their pay is supposed to go up. So up until the age of 21, you're getting a pay raise every year. Um, so again, it depends on the age, it depends on the industry, it depends on the actual employer themselves, because of course they do have some variation between them. Um, some employers have enterprise agreements, so they have separate agreements as to award wages for them. Um, so the best thing you can do is, of course, still go back to Fair Work Australia, go back onto PACT because they do go through award wages as well, um, and check the information that's specifically for you. And what does the PA? What is the PACT? <laughs> so the um, the PACT is the Paying Conditions Tool. Um, it's a free tool on Fair Work Australia's website, which you can use to find your award wage. Um, it also has a shift calculator and a leave calculator for full-time employees, which can be super useful. Um, but I often should point students to the pay calculator. It asks questions like, how old are they? Um, what job are they working in? Um, are they on any additional benefits? Um, what level are they? So 
obviously I normally suggest going with the lowest level possible, especially if you're just starting out because it's hard to tell. Um, and so once you enter all that information into the tool, it'll give you a page that suggests this is what the hourly pay rate should look like. And then further down the page, it also talks about common penalty rates as well. So it gives you a chance to, to enter information and try to find the most accurate for you. One of the other um, areas you talked about for students who are employed was checking their pay slips mm. and another acronym, NAPS. Can yes, you take NAPS. us through that? Of course. So, so NAPS stands for um, Name, Amount, Pay and Superannuation. It's an abbreviation that we use to help um, get students to remember to check their pay slips. Um, so name, we talk about checking the name of the company you're working for as well as your own name. And I mean, it seems silly, but mistakes have, have always happened in those areas. Um, from there, you're checking how much you were paid and how many hours you've worked in that time. Uh, again, often we find that's where most mistakes get made um, because if an employer, you know, for whatever reason, has forgotten that the young one did an extra five minutes or did like an extra hour or, you know, covered someone's shift on a Tuesday, uh, ultimately, if it's not in the payslip, they probably haven't been paid for it. Um, so we ask them to check the hours they've worked, make sure that's correct. Um, we talk about gross and net pay um, purely because we want them to get a good understanding about tax and obviously the fact that they will pay tax at times, so making sure they know how much they're actually receiving, how much is going to tax, and then superannuation as well. Um, we're all of the opinion that superannuation is something people should look at a bit younger because it's something we're obviously trying to invest in for our future. So it's somewhere they can go to make sure they're getting superannuation when they are owed superannuation. And, and in the investing workshop, we talk a bit more about the rules around when you're supposed to get super. So that's why we often say that checking superannuation is also important there too. When are you meant to get super? So when you're under the age of 18, the rules are relatively straightforward. If you earn over $450 in a calendar month, so from the 1st, the 31st, the 30th, and you work over 30 hours in a single week, so at least 31, um, when you're under the age of 18, you're owed superannuation. Um, so as a general rule of thumb, especially with the older groups, we normally talk with about this. Um, if they've worked over 30 hours, they've probably earned over 450 that month, so they're likely owed superannuation. 450 gross or net? So 450 gross, I gross. believe. Yes. Okay, um, so let's talk about tax, and yeah. we won't go into much Everybody's detail. Everybody's favourite subject. <laughs> Can you just take, it, take us through some of the important things we need to know about tax, especially the tax-free threshold? Of course. So um, when we talk about tax in the workshop, we really just highlight the fact that um, having a tax fund number is important, and I really stress it because I often say, you know, if a student waits until they want to get a job before they get a tax file number, they send the paperwork away, it takes ages, the job may be gone by the time they actually get the number in the first place. Um, so getting the number as soon as possible, the tax file number is always a great idea. Um, from there, again, you know, keeping track of how much tax you're paying, it doesn't seem as important, but it's often a good idea. And then when you get that pay payment summary at the end of the year, checking and making sure how much tax have I paid and pretty much knowing you're going to get it back. But again, it's important to, to still check it. Um, as far as the tax-free threshold goes, um, we don't talk about it as much in the workshop unless it is brought up. Um, but of course, talking about the fact that uh, your first job or your main job, if a student is working in more than one, they will obviously pay tax pay way less tax on, well, if they have a second job, they're going to pay more tax on that because they have more than a single job. 
Um, Troy, I just wanted to end today on talking about the, uh, a concept that you, you expressed to me earlier, financial literacy. Financial. This is a really interesting term. Mm -hmm. Would you say that now more than ever, students need to, to have the skills needed? Absolutely. I think, um, especially in the modern world, when um, being able to tap a card on a machine uh, to make a purchase uh, is super quick and super efficient, uh, I think it's more important than ever that we take the time to really think about our purchases. And um, a lot of teachers, parents, students that I've spoken to definitely agree that the, the more of this that we have and the more students kind of get involved and understand and think about financial literacy, um, the better it positions them because, I mean, it doesn't matter if you want to be a doctor, an electrician, uh, a janitor when you leave school, everyone needs to know how to manage their money. It's one of the most universal skills as far as I'm concerned. So yes, uh, definitely more of it is always uh, the best. You started off the workshop talking about the first jobs that a lot of famous people had. Yes. And there was a phrase you, you used, which was to learn and earn from every job. Mm -hmm. Can you take us through what you were getting at there? Of course. So um, I think, especially when I'm talking about the topic of first jobs, um, and I'm, we've, we've all been there, you have the first job. It's probably not what you wanna do with your life. It's probably one of the furthest things away from where you see yourself in the future. And sometimes just getting up and going to work can just be a real drab. Like it's, it's really difficult, you're dragging out of bed that morning. And I think the big point behind that is ultimately getting people to understand that even if this job has nothing to do with what you wanna do in the rest of your life, there's always something of benefit you get to take away with you. Um, you know, the experience of you know, learning how to handle cash is something that we know employers ask for or look for when it comes down to it. So getting the experience behind that, you know, meeting new people. Um, one of the people that I met in my first job is actually responsible for getting me a job that I had later in my life. So, you know, meeting more people, getting out there, networking, building building relationships with others, um, learning other skills like, you know, uh, customer service. You get to, if you take on a role as a supervisor, you're learning about management. Um, there's so many things that you can take away beyond just the paycheck at the end of the day, especially for a first job, because a lot of these skills are stuff that you've probably never had to deal with before. Um, it can be a real kind of character building moment if you see it that way. And, if you're just kind of dragging yourself into work every day and just doing the bare minimum, I think you can miss out on a lot of those cool benefits. You also mentioned the importance of a good reference and a good reputation. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, as I brought up in the, in the workshop as well, Forbes magazine, as they worked out, went that, uh, found that 80% of all jobs that get hired go unadvertised, um, which is a crazy high number and again really shows me personally that um, if someone you know or someone um, has a high opinion of you and they attempt to get you a job somewhere, having an employee, a fellow employee, being able to say to their boss, you know, this is the kind of person that you want working for you, that, that's very powerful, you know? And for students, I often talk about the fact that often when you apply for a job, especially when you're just looking for casual work, there are normally other people who are just as qualified as you are. And sometimes the only thing that can separate you is that you've got a teacher on your reference list that when they call that teacher says, this is a good person, this is a good student, this is a great, this is a great role model, this is the kind of person that you want working for you. Um, and I think, I think people underestimate how powerful that can be. Um, 
because I mean, word of mouth, it's, it's a real thing, you know? Just let's finish today on what makes a good employee in your opinion? What makes a good employee? Um, look, I think the best thing is, is that um, really just throwing yourself into what you do. Um, the more, like everyone is going to struggle, everyone's going to do well, um, no one's perfect, you know, but it's just all about really giving a conscious effort. You know, if you're taking the time to go in and give your best every day, even if you don't have to be the best employee in the world, you don't have to be the, you know, the, the smartest person in the world, but I think just by going in there and giving it your all, and just really applying yourself to what you do, I think that makes you a very, very good employee for anyone. Because like you said, we all have to work. Mm. Why we do. do we all have to work, Troy? Because we have to earn money and money <laughs> makes the world go around. <laughs> Look, it's been fabulous talking to you today and thank you for all the skills and knowledge that you've given our students. No, it's been a true pleasure. They're a great group to work with. And for more information about the Start Smart program, visit startsmart.com.au. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening.